continue our study of the book of Ezra. We turn this evening to Ezra chapter 8. Name with a, a, sorry, a chapter with a number of names in it. I hope that uh, you'll be merciful to me if I butcher some of these lovely Hebrew names. I've not uh, made much comment about the reason for the names in Scripture. Many, many reasons can be given. We are thankful that the Lord does not forget one of the, even one of the saints who serve uh, for his glory. And so we won't either this evening from Ezra chapter 8, reading in verse 1. These are the heads of the father's homes, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the sons of Phineas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithmar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, and registered with him 150 males, of the sons of Patath, Moab, Eliahonai, the son of Zeriah, and with him 200 males of the sons of Zechariah, Zechaniah, rather, Beth Jehaliel, and with him 100 males of the sons of, excuse me, uh, 300 males of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 males of the sons of Shephthiah and Zebediah, the son of Michael, 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 rather, and with him 80 males. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 males. Of the sons of Shalomith, Ben-Josephiah, of him, uh, and with him 160 males. Of the sons of Bebi, Zechariah, the son of Bebi, and with him 28 males. Of the sons of Asgad, Jehonan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males. Of the last sons of Adonikam, whose names are these, Eliphlet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, also of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zabud, and with them 70 males. Now, I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests, and I found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, and Shimeiah, Elinathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders, uh, also for Joirib and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief of man at the, at the place of Kasipha, and told them that they should do and say to Edo, his brethren, the Nethanim, also at the place of Kasipha, that they should bring servants For the house of our God. Then, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahili, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jehisha, and the the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king 
an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashbiah, and 10 of the brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering for the house of God, which the king and his counselors and princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins and worth 1,000 drachmas, and uh, two vessels of uh, polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold and the freewill offerings of the God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem and the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem and to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, with them were the Levites, Jehozabad, the son of Jeshua, and uh, Nadiah, the son of Benui, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come up from captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the government, uh, governors beyond the region and the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, as we come, we pray that we too, in uh, these latter days, may receive from this word that uh, doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness that you have appointed, that we too may be thoroughly equipped, we on whom the ends of the ages have come, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work in your service. Amen. Well, Branch Rickey is a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, longtime manager of several major league teams, and uh, also an outspoken Christian. He was head of the Brooklyn Dodgers for a time, and there was a point where he was negotiating a ballplayer's contract in a deal that involved some big bucks. So negotiations were going well. The big numbers were on the table with many zeros, but suddenly Ricky threw down his pencil, pushed back his chair, and growled, deal's off. The other men were confused. What do you mean, they asked. We're, we're coming along well with these negotiations because you've been talking about a friend of mine, and I don't like it. What do you mean? We haven't been talking about anyone, let alone a friend of yours. Oh, yes, you have, replied Ricky. You've mentioned him in almost every sentence. And finally, they got the point. As Ricky pointed out, 
their consistent profane use of the name of Jesus Christ. The, the man apologized, stopped their profanity, and concluded the negotiations. Well, uh, it's rare that the people of God are so zealous for the Lord's name. But we remember that he himself is zealous for it, and our Savior teaches us to be zealous as well. In fact, he says in that prayer that he taught us that our very first petition, our first desire above everything else is to say, Lord, hallowed be your name. Is that your first priority? Is that the first desire? If you were making a prayer, would that stand above all as what you wanted from the Lord? Oh God, no matter what happens in my life, may your name be hallowed? Well, that is a tall uh, lesson. And Ezra today is going to be our teacher in this. We have met Ezra, our author, already in the previous chapter. And here we, for the first time, get to see him in real action. And we learned how he handled his first dilemma. Now, if you need to be caught up, Ezra is leading back a, a band, a, a company of some 5,000 exiles to return to Jerusalem. And through the wonderful blessing of God, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, has not only granted this man authority to return, but also to commission him to help reestablish God's people as a holy people in their land, and to appoint local magistrates and judges, and to teach and enforce the law of God. And the king has provided Ezra with a very generous gift and other resources for the temple and its worship, including a fortune in silver and gold. Now, I got to tell you, there's some disagreement about the proper conversion of Persian talents and derricks, or as we have here, drachmas into our English pounds and tons. Uh, some of you have that this is uh, 7,500 pounds of gold or three and three quarter tons of gold. That's quite a lot of gold uh, and about 25 tons of silver. Uh, even if our understanding of ancient weights and measures isn't uh, right, we, it's clear that they are very concerned because they are going to carry with them a fortune, a great amount of wealth on a four-month journey of some 800 to 1,000 miles, depending on the route, back to Jerusalem. Um, all right, well, that's the task. That's where we are today. Do, do you think they ought to ask for a military escort since they're carrying that much silver and gold? Well, hmm, it's, a, it's hard to say. On the one hand, Ezra has the favor of the king, and the king would certainly grant it to him if he asked. I think there's little doubt about that. The king has been so generous and has such respect for this man, Ezra. If he said, king, can I, can I have a detachment? He would give it. But on the other hand, Ezra worries. Would that reflect badly on my God? Um, would that make him think, after all I've told him, that God couldn't grant them safety? You see, verse 22 is really the, the, the place where this all turns. Uh, Ezra writes, I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Because we had spoken to the king, we had, we had just told him, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Now, you've got to give Ezra credit, right? I mean, he has borne a bold, brave witness to the king about 
honoring God. And that those who honor God, God will honor. And now they have to make this long journey. And Ezra thinks it's better not to ask. So they're going to have to make a long journey with a fortune, gold and silver, unprotected, and a dangerous day. This is a tremendous test of faith. Ezra is not just responsible for himself and the silver and gold, but of course also for thousands of men and women and children, which makes the decision all the more difficult. So, so you see the problem. Um, maybe, maybe it's not such a problem that you face every day, right? You're not carrying around a fortune of silver and gold, probably. Um, but I know that you believe that God's hand is for good to those who seek him, right? I mean, you wouldn't be here tonight unless you believed that. Here you are seeking the Lord. You believe that God's hand is for good to those who seek him. But, but you know that sometimes it's difficult, if not even risky, to live that way. It's one thing to sing these psalms about God's name and to have a hearty amen. But then Monday morning comes and all the trials and problems are weighing you down. And, well, you know, it's hard to bear a strong testimony and to live it out consistently. And that amen sounds very far away by 9 o'clock on Monday morning. So you can imagine Ezra there at the river. Uh, he's, he's decided we're going to go unarmed, unaccompanied. Uh, they're there, well, I mean, without any military escort. They're, they're, they're there at the river. They're fasting three days. You can imagine him praying, Lord, I, I know you can protect us. I, I know that you have already given favor with the king and that you can do the rest. But Lord, have I been hasty? Lord, am I being foolish? Am I tempting your hand? Maybe I should have asked for help. This is going to be a dangerous journey, and I've got women and children to look after besides all this. Have I made the wrong decision? God, forgive me. I have done this because I want to bring honor to your name. Oh, let me not dishonor it by my own foolish choice. By the way, this makes a very interesting contrast between what we see later in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Uh, Ezra here, all things considered, says it's better for me not to ask for a military escort to bring me safely to Jerusalem, that the name of God should be praised. Uh, Nehemiah, chapter 2, a few years later, he, he gets a military escort and goes back to Jerusalem, probably without asking, but in any case, he seems very happy to have it because it's a dangerous road in a long way. So here are two godly men, Ezra and Nehemiah, who come to opposite conclusions about whether it's best or whether it's right to have an escort. Here are two men who love God and love his word, men of faith and prayer. Of that there is no doubt. But in this matter, they, they come to different decisions. Ezra concludes, based on what he just said to the king, it would not be a, a good thing for me to ask for help. Nehemiah has no problem taking a military escort with him at all. He, he doesn't want to say, oh, king, don't worry, my God's going to protect me. He says, saddle up, guys, let's, let's, let's go. You, 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 you're all packing, right? Okay, I think this teaches us that sometimes godly people can come to different conclusions seeking to do what's best. I mean, you've got to admire Ezra for his bold confession of faith before the king and then for... For, to, to trust in the sovereignty of God as he carries this great burden and responsibility as he makes this decision 
we're going to venture all on God protecting us now to the glory of his name in the kingdom of Persia. Um, I don't know if I would have made the same decision. I, I find myself resonating with Nehemiah. What about you? I don't know. But Ezra, but Ezra rather, is a book about risky faith, uh, about boldness, about laying it all on the line, that God's name should be praised in the nations, even if he and the people of God have to suffer for it. Oh, God, I'm going to honor you. Oh, please, honor me to the glory of your name. he's, He's doing something which is risky in order to bring honor to the Lord. And this will be our study today. I'm going to cover it in two parts. Number one, we must do all to the glory of God. Somebody should write that a catechism about that. Second, we need great faith to live this way. We need great faith to live this way. This is what I got for you. First, we must do all to the glory of God. Ezra is writing this not for himself. He knows what happened. He's teaching us our duty to live before the world, the heathen world, in such a way that our lives bring credit to God and actually confirm the words that we have testified about him. That's what this book is about. Uh, supremely, by the way. Um, you might remember me telling you some time ago about that uh, great missionary of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland, John Payton, his moving description about how he had to leave, for, leave home for, for school, for university in Glasgow. This, this was the first time he was really going to be away from his home of his youth and his much beloved and godly parents. And John Payton's father uh, accompanied him along the road for a little while. His his cap in his hand, uh, very moved, uh, some lips moving in prayer, but um, besides that, he was just too overcome with emotion to speak much, praying along the way. And when they last re- reached a crossroads where they had to say their goodbyes, they did say them tearfully. And then as the young John Payton walked ahead and finally out of sight around the bend, John decided he would just climb climb up the, the hill a, a little bit on the bend and, and just to look back and to, to see his beloved dad just one more time. And when he got back, when he got to the top of the hill, his, he found that his father had done the same thing. And that he could see his father searching down the road somewhere, looking at, for the back of his departing son. John could see his father, but his father didn't uh, see him up on the hill where he was. And Failing to see him, he finally turned back and he made his way. But he wrote in his autobiography, I I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as God had given That is Ezra's point about our Father in heaven. Ezra had access to the king in the court. He had preached or taught or spoken before King Artaxerxes about the living and true God who had made the heavens and the earth and all that they contained of his saving power and majesty, his faithfulness to bless, his promises 
uh, that he had made in his word and that he is, has his hand against those who are against him. Ezra was very concerned then that nothing, nothing that he did or that was done by those under his authority would reflect negatively on the Lord's name and reputation. You see his heart. And that's why he goes to this great risk. In fact, you also notice here that when Ezra uh, uh, departed, um, Ezra was keen to measure out all the items by weight at the very beginning. And uh, then when they got to Jerusalem, he had everything numbered again and weighed out again uh, in order that they could report back to the king that the entire amount had been faithfully delivered without a bit of it being stolen through greed or corruption. That's the point of counting it and weighing it carefully when they left, counting it and weighing it carefully when they arrived. It's just like Paul writing about his careful handling of the gift for the poor in Jerusalem. We have regard, he says, for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. I was challenged when I read such passages. I think, well, why, why do you care so much about what, what, what men think? They have all kinds of their own ideas. Well, P Paul, Paul knew that the Lord was with him, but, but he wanted to go the extra mile just to make sure that the men could see that he was acting with integrity. You know, the Billy Graham rule has been around for a while, and people have said, well, this, is a, this, is, this rule is over the top, never to be alone with anyone of the opposite gender. Well, today, who knows what, what, that, what that would mean, right? Um, his point in this, uh, knowing it was, it, it was overprotection in many ways, but he's not just thinking about what's right in the sight of the Lord. He's thinking about what's right in the sight of men, and he's willing to suffer if God's name should be hallowed. Not just that there should be no scandal, but that there should be some honor for his God. And the more we've had scandals, the more that we've had um, immorality in the church, the more I realize the wisdom of going above and beyond to testify to the world that not everybody's a televangelist like you saw on TV. Perhaps as they paid out the stuff at the beginning and weighed it out at the end, some of the leaders grumbled, doesn't he trust us? Why do we have to weigh everything again? Both sides, write it all down, communicate it to the king. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of honor in the sight of the world. The Bible teaches us to prioritize the honor of God's name in many ways, both positively and negatively. The Lord often speaks of the honor that he receives and the joy that that brings him when his children live in an exemplary way before the world as his faithful children. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. For Peter writes that we should speak to unbelievers with gentleness and respect in order that those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. To, to live in such a way is that we're undermining the slanders of the people who are speaking against us, even in their own eyes. Um, still more in Jeremiah 33, in that promise of future restoration for God's people, the Lord says, when my people are cleansed and forgiven and I've restored them and blessed them, then this city will once again bring me glory. 
And so it is in the Christian church when it lives faithfully and testifies that what the Bible says about our God is true. And you haven't seen the half of it. The half has not been told you. When people realize that by, by, by coming amidst the people of God and finding out that this testimony is true, what an honor this is to our God. But in many other passages, the Bible acknowledges the dishonor to God and to God's name that his people also have too often been. You remember that when Israel was unfaithful and grumbled in the wilderness that the Lord threatened to destroy her. And Moses, on that very ground, intercedes and says, Lord, if you destroy this people, let me ask you, what will the nations think? Yes, you can have your justice on this people, but they will think that you are either unfaithful because you promised to lead them to the land of Canaan and now you're going back on your word, or, Lord, they're going to say that you weren't able to do what you promised to do. Either they'll say God cannot or he will not keep his word. I mean, he didn't say that the people were, weren't, weren't, weren't worthy of punishment and, and, and judgment. He couldn't argue that. But he won his case completely on the fact that if, if, if you wipe this people out, what, what will the nations say? Or you remember how the sad case of David's adultery with Bathsheba, the Lord declared that the child born to them was not going to live but die, even though David's sin had been forgiven. Um, for, for 2 Samuel 12, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed, by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child who was born to you shall surely die. That is harsh. It's not that you're not forgiven. But there needs to be some justice that comes to your house in order that God's name should not be blasphemed among the nations. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 2 when he says that, you know, when Jews teach God's law, then break God's law, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, and uh, one more here. This is an interesting one. This is uh, from Ezekiel chapter 36. When the Lord says that he's going to send his people into exile, I'm going to send them away. And he says how hard it was because they went among the nations and profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. These are Jehovah's people. And yet they had to leave his land. Okay? You don't think much about that. We, we might think about the great pain and misery and punishment that it was for God's people to be sent into exile, into Babylon, and so forth. We don't think of the shame and the dishonor that it was to the Lord himself to have to send them there, out of the promised land, as a punishment for their sins. But the point is, God is mindful for his own glory in a way that we are often not. Ezra's risking the, 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 the company and their cargo in order that that king might think well of our God. That's, that's, that strikes us as unnecessarily risky. But Ezra is teaching us our duty to have as our first priority, our first petition, our first desire, hallowed be thy name. 
That is our duty, to live before the world in such a way that no matter what we must suffer, that God may be honored and that we might confirm the words that we have spoken to others about him. That is a challenge, isn't it? That's difficult. And so my second point flows naturally from the first. We need great faith to live that way. We will need great faith to live that way. What's, I think again, Ezra a right to refuse this escort. You know, the normal pattern in the Bible, by far the normal pattern, is to trust God while thankfully using the right means that he provides, right? Yes, you, you pray for protection on the highways, and that is your ultimate trust. But, you know, you fasten your seatbelt and you drive carefully. We pray for traveling mercies, and that doesn't mean that that we should not buckle our seatbelt in order to bear testimony to our unsaved uncle that God is able to protect us, right? I mean, that's, uh, Jesus calls that uh, tempting, tempting God, tempting the hand of God. We pray for healing while we go to the doctor and take the medicine. You pray for a job while you prepare your resume, dress correctly, and go for an interview. God teaches us to use the proper means from beginning to end while trusting ultimately in him. Book of Proverbs. Okay. Well, we, we realize that there are some times when using means could lead us astray from our trust in the Lord or would be a poor witness to unbelievers. This is probably rare, but it does happen. We, we, we think about times when perhaps it didn't even need to happen, but it was sure blessed of God. You think of George Mueller, for instance, who vowed that he would demonstrate his faith and honor God by not advertising the financial needs of his orphanages. I'm just going to pray, and God's going to provide. And I am certain that he honored God greatly in the way that he operated, making known his, deeds only to, his needs only to, to God in prayer, and how wonderfully God honored that. If you've never read his biography, if you don't know about the amazing ways in which just at the right time, you know, they finish saying a prayer for their food, even though they have no food, right? They're thanking the Lord, and uh, the milk truck breaks down outside, and the guy rushes in and says, hey, I've got all this extra milk. It's going to be spoiled. Do you need something? There we go, right? All these ways in which God wonderfully honored this man. Were other orphanages wrong, as virtually all other orphanages reveal the needs of their ministries to God's people while trusting in God and asking him to provide? Of course not. Uh, this is the usual way we find it in the Bible. Both means are appropriate, as we see from Ezra and Nehemiah, but we do need to be sure that we, in any case, are honoring God and trusting him. But, so th there are those kind of extreme cases, maybe, but in, in, in daily life, know that there are times when at least you and I, especially you young people, very subject to peer pressure, when we, young people, <clears throat> will have to do what is foolish in the eyes of the world. Take a stand, say something, do something which looks like sheer folly, which makes us look like fanatics or idiots. Because we are seeking to honor God and consciously trusting and obeying him. And, you know, if we, if we didn't do it, nobody would notice. But if we do it, everybody will notice, right? <sighs> Such hard times. Now, 
there are times when you, will, you and I will have to do what is foolish in the eyes of the world because we're trusting and obeying the Lord. And I'll, and I'll give you uh, some illustrations of this, but, uh, but you know, being sometimes overly conscientious or scrupulous about things, in a thousand ways, making small choices, how are we going to live? How are we going to choose to honor God in the sight of others? Are we keeping the commandments in such a way that we are not just being odd, but actually being an honor to the Lord? Are we keeping those commandments gladly, cheerfully, expectantly, or grudgingly? Do we act like there is great reward in keeping the commandments of our God so that we are anxious to obey them because we know that the hand of the Lord is for good to those who fear him? Do we act as though the way of the transgressor is hard? And my friend, you may think that this is fun now, but this is foolish and misery in the end. And you are denying yourself the chief pleasure of life, of knowing the Lord and of enjoying his salvation. Or are we finding sin as alluring as everyone else and believing the, 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 the deceitful pleasures of sin? Are we trusting the Lord for our future because we say that we believe that he has an all-capable hand? You know, I don't know what kind of questions you're facing or what kinds of other things that are out there, but it's just too easy to live like everyone else does, as though there were no God and no such promise, as I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this is, this is where the rubber meets the road uh, for you guys in your daily life. I, I, don't, I don't know how, it, how it's going to come out. But, but, but listen, God, uh, God has arranged things in such a way. God has made it a part of your faith, of your Christian life, to have this test in your life regularly. He actually even put it into the law of Israel that everybody three times a year would have to take a huge risk just to be faithful to God and to learn to trust him. Did you know that? You know what I'm talking about? It's one of my favorite illustrations of this principle. You remember that God commanded three times a year that all the men of Israel must come together, worship before him at his holy house for the three festivals of Israel. That's right. Every one of you men, yes, on the borders, yes, right next to the warlike heathen nations, yes, next to those people that have iron chariots, yes, everyone, every man among you needs to leave that city Leave the women and children and animals and, every, and all your goods and come up before me and worship. And they must have thought, we can't leave our women and children unprotected. We can't leave all of our goods here. Oh, God, God tells them in, in Exodus 34, don't worry. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Okay? God didn't say, don't worry, no one's going to take your land. He says, don't worry, no one's going to even covet your land. Desire it. Such is the sovereignty of our God. For those three weeks a year, God says, I'm going to make sure that nobody even has an unwarranted desire. Now you leave those homes and you leave those families to me. You come up here and worship with joy. You say, that takes an incredible amount of faith. Well, exactly. And this is exactly why God did it that way. This is not some strange requirement, right? 
just the men, all the men, three times a year, leaving your homes. This whole arrangement was to build into the life of God's people that they need to trust him with everything. They need to do what he says, even if it looks completely foolish in the sight of the world. You would never do it that way. To teach them that he was in sovereign control. And they had to learn in all their daily lives to live by faith. Now, in a thousand ways, I say, we're going to have to make smaller choices, thankfully, much smaller. I mean, if, it, if, it was, if that was the risk to come up here and worship today, I doubt I would see all of you here, right? Faithful people that you are. God has said to you, I will never leave you or forsake you, that all your days were ordered before you, ordered for you before there was yet one of them. Are you living in the peace of God because of Christ's triumph over sin and death? Or are you carrying around burdens and guilt as though you'd never been having your sins nailed to the cross? Are you speaking to others and caring for others as you really believe that today is the day of salvation and that these people that you have intercourse with day by day are under the wrath and condemnation of God? Or are you behaving as if things like heaven and hell don't even exist? Do you thrill and celebrate the tremendous mercy of Christ in your life? Or are you living as though it was just a purely predictable thing and that Christianity is a box you check off on a census? Do you pray as though the Almighty is ready to hear and answer whenever his people pray to him? Or is prayer pretty much the same as everybody else of every other religion or no faith whatsoever? I, I tell you that we are just spiritual infants and pygmies with regards to living by faith. We have just begun to live and to learn, right? As Christians, we long for the glory of God, point one. But I tell you, we are going to need great faith to live this way, to put into practice these things of eternal truth. Ezra, Ezra has to say goodbye to the king, thinking, you know, is he going to ask? Is he going to ask? No. Okay, I'm going to go. Probably all of the Lord, right? You say? Exactly. And Israel had to go and then tell all those returning exiles, 5,000 people carrying a fortune with them in a day of bandits at every turn, we're not going to have any armed guards to accompany you or your children and your goods. And I think it's amazing there's no indication that people began bailing out. Ezra reports, though, I, I proclaimed a fast <laughs> at the river Ahava. I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, for our little ones and our possessions. Let's, let's begin this with a three-day fast, people. I bet that was a time of fasting and prayer like those people had never experienced before. But you know, they made it, and they gained something very important for that dangerous trip. Because when you do those things for the honor of God in the sight of the world, those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. When you live out this risky faith, when you make the decision again and again that you are going to live in the sight of the world in such a way that God may be honored, God, for his part, comes through and blesses time and time again. Do you believe that? I mean, you can say amen here. Monday at 9 a.m. is coming. It's very hard. Sometimes the, sometimes the question is just not easy. You feel like you're compromising by trying to 
live what's right in the sight of the world, to, to meet people's unreasonable expectations. It's, it's easier for Christians just to, to stand up and demand their rights for things sometimes. But you know, trusting in the Lord and honoring his name first does solve some of those naughty things. I'm gonna, in conclusion, I'd like to give you an illustration of this from uh, Charles Simeon. I hope you know that name. I've mentioned him many times. Evangelical English preacher at Cambridge, middle of the 19th century. Many leaders and missionaries went forth from his congregation. Uh, and by the way, he's a magnificent preacher. He's got all kinds of things online. Um, the Simeon Trust teaches preachers how to preach. He was given the pastorate in Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge, the university city. And as soon as he got it, even before he got it, he faced tr tremendous opposition. Most of the membership did not want him as the minister, right? In the Episcopal system, it's tough luck, okay? Most of the people strongly preferred another man and were highly offended by Simeon's evangelical preaching. Now, in those days in the church, you owned a pew. You know, we, we joke about, you know, is this your pew, so forth. They literally owned the pews back then. You at least uh, paid for the year. And uh, if, if you didn't sit in it, nobody else could. That was your pew. And so the people locked the pews and refused to come to service. And as a result, the only place where anybody could sit in the service would be the aisles, right? The, they didn't actually lock them, although there was... There was some, there are some pews where you could actually do that here. But the, the, the point is, those were their pews. Nobody could sit in them. They didn't come. And the pews were empty. But the aisles were full of people. This literally happened. Uh, there was more trouble. Some people then did come to hear Simeon preach only because they wanted to see him out. So they would make noise on purpose. Sometimes people had to be removed by the authorities. You got to wonder about his choices, you know. Do I let it go on? Do I call the campus officers? It was a tremendously difficult first few years for Simeon. Imagine trying to have church service with eight or ten undergraduates from the university yelling and making noise and disrupting the service just, just to create a stir and to rile you and distract everybody else. And on top of all this, the heads of the university houses, for their part, and the other chief men of the colleges, they looked down upon Simeon and they made their dislike and suspicions felt in many ways. So he was, uh, 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 he, he had this, uh, uh, there's one college, for instance, they decided that they were going to start a regular lecture on the Greek New Testament on Sunday nights for the students, understanding that uh, this would prevent all the students from going to hear Simeon preach on the evening, in the Lord's Day evening. The school had never had this lecture before. It was, in fact, uh, none of the students wanted it either. But they wanted something that those students would feel obliged or compelled to come to so that they wouldn't go to Simeon's service. So what should Simeon do? What do you think? How do you think he responded to that challenge? I mean, he, he, could, have filed, uh, he could have filed a complaint. He could have protested, right? When his undergraduate friends told him about it, he advised them that they should try to set a careful example of regular attendance at those lectures. In fact, pay close attention 
to those evening Greek New Testament lectures, letting it be seen that the evangelical faith did not mean the neglect of duty. In fact, the evangelical students were the most conscientious and the most attentive of all the students in the lectures, which nobody wanted anyway. Simeon, in other words, didn't want the evangelicals to have a reputation to be troublemakers or poor students at the university. And he saw this as an opportunity to distinguish those believers from others. After a few years, the lecture was just given up in protest of one of the fellows. It was never revived. I, I think I'd be so much more likely, I think we'd all be so much more likely to protest what was being done. Um, you know, Simeon wanted more than anything to be careful to protect the name of God and the glory and honor of his gospel, to adorn the gospel of God in all things, as Paul puts it to Titus. Regard in those days was so low for the evangelical faith. Simeon did not want his followers to do anything that would affect it negatively. He saw this is an opportunity for us to shine a bit. Would we have made the same decision? Would we have made the same decision as Ezra? Would we be compelled to? Probably not. But God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And you've got to believe that, even in the small choices. May God give us such a passion for the honor of his name that whatever we decide in these difficult matters, whether, and whether we eat or drink, that we may do it all to the glory of God. Ezra 8. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, you would teach us just something of this, for we have just begun to live as your children. We are so feebly minded. We see as irritations those which are opportunities. We see as causes for anger these opportunities that we have to glorify you. We are not wise. We pray that you would make us wise as it's given here, not only wise unto salvation as you have made us, but wise that uh, we should know when we might lay it on the line, risk our own reputation or more to do something which perhaps seems foolish in the eyes of the world, but if it comes through, makes you look great in the eyes of the nations. Our Father, we, we long that something great for the glory of your name should come from these poor lives. And so we pray that you would remember us for good. And as we honor you,